and welcome to episode 122 of Tea or Books. I'm Simon. I'm Rachel. And in this episode, we are talking all things Mary Lawson. Mary Lawson is a Canadian novelist, born in Canada, moved here to the UK in the 1960s, so we can claim her as one of our own. Uh, her first novel, Crow Lake, was published in 2002, had been rejected by literary agents for years, but then was in a bidding war and became an enormous success. Uh, a lot of acclaim and a lot of popular success translated into, I believe, 25 languages, maybe more. Oh. It was followed by uh, The Other Side of the Bridge in 2006, Road Ends in 2013, and A Town Called Solace in 2021, which was nominated for the Booker Prize. And I can't believe I'm saying this because it's extraordinary. But with us on this episode is Mary Lawson herself. Welcome, Mary. It is a real pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's really re real pinch me moment. So we're so thrilled to have you. Uh, regular listeners will know that we usually do a couple of topics. This time we're just going to focus on the, on the four novels that Mary Lawson has uh, published. Um, but as usual, we'll talk first of all about what we've been reading recently. Maybe Rachel, you'll kick us off. Yeah, I will. Um, hi, everyone. So I'm actually halfway through an enormous novel at the moment, which I bought when I was in Budapest over half term. And it's a translation of um, a Hungarian novel called, well, in English, the, the translation is Temptation. Um, and it's by, uh, I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, Janos <laughs> Shekeli, um, I think, Hungarian listeners, I apologise. And it's basically, it's a huge classic in Hungary. It's uh, sort of 20th, early 20th century David Copperfield, if you like. And it's the story of a young boy who grows up in terrible poverty out in the countryside and his journey to make something of his life. And it's absolutely extraordinary. It's so good. It's so heartwarming, and emotionally gripping and funny at the same time. I love the voice of it. The translator is fabulous and it's about 900 pages long but it, it's it's a book I don't actually want to finish I'm reading it really slowly because I just can't bear the thought that I will finish it at some point because there are no other novels by this writer that have been translated into English so um, Hungarian translators please do the rest of his oeuvre because it's amazing. Wow and we've you know I, I assume many of our listeners are Hungarian translators so perfect. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I've only read two novels by Hungarians, Skylark by a name I can't pronounce, it's the New York Review book of classics one, and then Embers by Sandra Murray, and they were both brilliant, so clearly Hungary have uh, got something in their blood. I don't know. They've got some talent, yeah. So what, um, what about you, Simon, what are you reading? I've just finished Vera by Elizabeth von Arnim. Oh. Um, yeah, so it's the one that um, people often say is her darkest and most autobiographical book, and potentially Daphne de Maurier ripped it off for Rebecca, question mark. Okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> like Rebecca, Vera is um, the dead first wife of the older man who marries a younger woman. Uh, she's just mourning her father. Uh, and basically it's a portrait of what would now be called coercive control. Mm. Um, and he is basically, he's like sort of a toddler mentality, but with the power of, a rich white man in the 1920s um and it's yeah it is dark it's i think it's not that unusual for elizabeth von arnim it's not 
you know, because if you've only read her sort of charming Enchanted April ones, then you might think she's just lovely, but it's it's quite similar to Father and Introduction to Sally yeah. characters and um, Otto and the Caravanners. But uh, yeah, it was very good. It was very, it covers a very short space, but only about a week, mm. which was interesting. But um, yeah, I, found I uh, intense and upsetting when I read it. Yeah, that's about right. But also yeah. quite funny at times. So it's <laughs> always that yeah. thread of humour. Yeah. Um, and Mary, what have you been reading recently? I'm uh, in the middle of uh, a William Boyd book, Waiting mm-hmm. for Sunrise. It's the third of his, I think, that I've read. Um, and I was absolutely wowed by how he handles history, the passage of time in his novels, because... Uh, he covers an enormous spread, which must, has to include history, um, and yet never feels as if you're reading history or anything remotely heavy. I like reading about characters, and he writes about characters. It's just that he also writes about their time. I was interested in listening to a previous podcast of yours where you were talking about this question of do you read for the story or do you read for the character and the writing? And I thought, perhaps I read for the, the character. I used to read for the story. Um, the thing that made me realize that you change as you get older is that a few years ago, I reread The Grapes of Wrath, which I had read as a teenager and thought was absolutely magnificent. And rereading it, I thought, that is the longest sermon I have ever read. (laughs) (laughs) Heavy on message, really heavy on message. Whereas William Boyd never comes across as heavy on message or even on time. It's just that he carries his characters through with him so skillfully that you don't notice that you're actually discovering quite a bit about the time they live through. Oh, wonderful! I do have a copy of it. In fact, uh, I met him at a, at a lit- you know literary signing things. I've got not, not only a copy but one dedicated to me by William Boyd. But if you yet to read oh. it, so, you spurred, oh. spurred me on. No, I love yeah. William Boyd. Every Human Heart is one of my favourite novels. Yeah, definitely. That's my favourite of his. It's yeah. a wonderful book. Wonderful book. Um, well, just before we move on to talk about the novels, um, which we will do shortly, I'd just like to get to know a bit more about your reading taste. We've got one glimpse there, Mary. But, um, have you always been a bookworm? Were there books you particularly loved as a child? Yes, there were. Um, the thing about Canada, and particularly about living in small communities, uh, and in particular about the time I was born in 1946, we had no television while I was growing up, and uh, particularly in winter, there is absolutely nothing to do if you don't read <laughs> what you do. So um, I think it was actually, I don't possibly still is a very literate country, partly because of that. Uh, and I was lucky to grow up in a, a house full of books, and uh, they were mostly pretty good books. Um, and I started off with the usual, you know, Black Beauty, that sort of thing, mm-hmm. and then went on. And I think the first 
really serious novel I read was Madame Bovary, which absolutely blew my socks off. <laughs> and and I, I still get the horrors thinking about it. And then the first um, Canadian serious novelist that I read, or adult novelist, I guess I should say, was Margaret Lawrence, whom you mentioned last time. Yes, wonderful Margaret Lawrence, yes. Yes, who I thought was amazing. And then I went through the, um, really the American greats, Hemingway and uh, Fitzgerald and Steinbeck and Salinger and so forth, um, which were very influential. I mean, I still skim Hemingway for dialogue. He was awfully good at dialogue. And mm. um, one of uh, Salinger's short stories for Esme with Love and Squalor um was the book that the short story that started me writing i thought oh god that's just the most perfect picture that he has painted in very few pages i'd love to be able to do that and then i moved on to um alice monroe and um margaret atwood and you know the the canadian classics if you like um, and then during COVID, uh, I moved away altogether from that sort of thing. I haven't read detective fiction. Oh. And I discovered Mick Heron, who uh, writes spy thrillers and made me laugh out loud at three in the morning, which is quite an achievement <laughs> during COVID. And um, so it's, I broadened my, my reading in the, um, last few years, but prior to that, I got hooked on Irish writers actually, and then uh -huh. Sebastian Barry and Colm Torben and so forth. So that's a summary. Yeah, so it covers uh, many things. Uh, one thing I have to ask because I saw it in your Wikipedia page um, is it true that you're related to Ellen Montgomery? It is. Which is not an advantage because no, well, I know. <laughs> she's a Canadian icon. She was yes. my grandfather's first cousin. And the Montgomery right. branch of the family uh, was the wealthy branch. And they helped put my grandfather through university. And uh, therefore, I have to be grateful to them as well as perpetually living in her shadow. <laughs> yes. wonderful yes well on my recent canada trip i was trying to read exclusively canadian authors and you know i've read some already but it was it was lovely to be able to read um some in in the places they wrote about i read and one collection of alice Munro sort of stories that was some of them set around the streets i was staying in in kitsilano in vancouver and that was rather special to, oh that would be, be that would be amazing. yes i gave a uh, a reading in her ex-husband's bookstore in, ah. I think, Victoria, um, Vancouver Island. Um, oh, but wonderful. yes, she is absolutely the best of the best, Alison. Oh, just extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and thankfully prolific. There's, there's plenty. Absolutely. Yes. And there are other writers coming along. Did you come across Thomas King? By any chance. No. He's an indigenous writer and he is brilliant and very, very funny. 
I highly recommend. Oh, and then Michael, yes, Michael Crummy. I don't know. Oh, if don't he, know him. No. No. Okay. Um, I'm just going to look at the title of his his book. Ooh, I can't see it sitting here. Um, uh, yes, who else? Well, there are, other, there are a lot of other. Michael Ondaatje, of course, is a Canadian writer. That was another thing that came up in your last yeah, yes. <laughs> that Canada takes in everybody, but then you see Canada is made up of everybody. We all came yes, from Yes, yeah. <laughs> another melting pot, yes. The people came from somewhere else. So, yeah, we all have fun <laughs> Yes, I, yeah, I think I said in that episode, yeah, that uh, all these people in the Canadian library that I had always thought were from other countries, but um, yeah. I was educated. <laughs> Brian Moore, no idea. Yeah. Like I say, um, we have nothing else to do but read, so. <laughs> um, we're going to move on now to what, well, yeah, the, the four novels. We'll take it in turns, going back and forth between Rachel and myself, uh, for who will... We'll cover the novels, but we'll start with Cray Lake, and as we introduce them, we'll um we'll say quickly what they're about in case there's anyone who hasn't read them, and then go on to the questions. So Cray Lake, the first novel, two thousand and two, uh, largely about this family, Kate, Luke, Matt, and Beau, who are orphaned very early in the novel. Um, they live in uh, far north Ontario, an area where all four novels are almost entirely set. We'll get on to that. Um, not a strictly real place Crow Lake but um, I'm sure based on places that that Mary knows I wrote in a review of it of when I wrote years and years ago I think um, it feels blasphemous to suggest that this is not a real place because I felt like I was there I felt like I knew these people um, parallel to that story of these four brothers and sisters um, in the after aftermath of the parents death is uh, the story of Kate returning to visit them she's now an academic uh, a few years later um, and some authors I know say that when you're writing a novel, bash out a first draft, get to the end, and then you've got something on the page and go back. I understand, Mary, that is more or less the opposite of your approach. <laughs> say more about that. Well, actually, Crowley was a bit of a one-off. That was my first novel, and I did not have a clue what I was doing. And I wrote it purely for my own pleasure. I've been trying to get work published forever and um, trying to second guess what people might want and it nothing worked. And then I had this idea that was um, based actually on a, a, a family, um, not a myth because it, it was true about my great grandmother fastening a book rest to her spinning wheel so that she could read while she was spinning. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was a hers was a success story they lived on a subsistence farm in um northern canada and there were four children and three of them had to do the work of the fourth um so that on the farm so that he could finish high school which was a first uh they were absolutely poverty stricken um they had very little money coming in at all they just lived off what they grew and um that that fourth boy turned out to be um quite bright and uh went on to university and once he was there uh 
when he had graduated. He went with the help of the Montgomerys, you might say. And um, when he graduated and got a job, he helped pay for his brother and the two of them helped pay for their sister and the three of them helped the fourth. So a success story, but it occurred to me that um, success stories don't make very good fiction necessarily. And I thought it might be interesting to look at what would happen if you had a kid who was very promising and for whom great sacrifices had been made and he blows it. So I just wrote this and I wrote it. I set it in a small farming community because I grew up in one. I set it in the far north because I so love it and because a sense of isolation I knew would be important to the novel and I know about a sense of isolation having grown up with it. Mm. And um, even a family of four, I come from a family of four. And I decided to tell it from the viewpoint of an adoring little sister. Um, and I had, I gave her my birthday so that uh -huh. I wouldn't want to do any research. I hate doing research. <laughs> um, so it kind of evolved out of that. And when I finished it, I gave it to my husband who said, he thought it was great, and I thought, well, what else could he say, poor man? And who else, whose opinion I value, might tell me the truth? And I decided it would maybe be my sister, so I asked her. I said, if you won't tell me the truth, don't, don't, don't bother, because you'll be wasting both of our time. And she said, sure, I'll tell you the truth. And she did. She said it, it didn't work. It, it read like a long, short story. Uh, that it needed more and so I had to go back and rewrite a second storyline piece it in on top of the first one about another family growing up in parallel to the Morrisons that was a long drawn out answer I'm sorry about that no no that's great I think it's um one of the things I love about it is the uh the detail of the sibling relationships and how they evolve over time particularly this yeah. you know this later story in there as well as um i know that your novels have both romantic and sibling relationships but i think there aren't many writers who write uh or not enough writers at least who write about sibling relationships as much and as as detail as you do is that, is that something you're particularly drawn to yes like i say i'm i'm one of four kids and we are very close-knit we had quite um challenging parents shall i say yeah. so we <laughs> bonded together against our parents and we're still very close and they're all involved one way and another with the books if it's only fact checking about the north because i left canada so long ago that i i'm wary of writing and i have to make sure that they check everything and make sure it's right and they spotted them in the acknowledgments of, uh, of all the books which is lovely <laughs> right that's right they're in there um, one of my favourite moments uh, in the in the novel, it's a very small moment, but it really helps tell you who Bo is, is when you're um, when she's they're trying to teach her Hickory Dickory Dock to try and um, give her inverted commas normal childhood, um, yeah. uh, and it, it, it was wonderful. Um, and I think you know a child character in general, I, I sometimes find they can be too saccharine or they can be too self self consciously uh, the opposite, and I think yeah. you know Bo is just 
perfection and i don't is that is did she was that a voice that came to you easily or did, she, did you have to develop to make sure it didn't seem too precocious or too yeah fall into any of the traps well it's funny you should you should single out though because she is the only character i have ever written about who is based on a real character i ah. i wanted this baby to uh give grief to the whole family be a complete nightmare and i started writing her and thought i know this child and it isn't one of my own and then i realized it was my little sister <laughs> and, and the reason that i don't write about base anything on real people is because that ties you down i want to be able to know them and create them as i want them and so I start from scratch. But with Bo, she's so young that she doesn't tie you down to anything yet. And my sister was a total nightmare. I remember. <laughs> so I phoned her and said, do you mind if I use your infancy in a book? And she said, not at all, because by then she was as convinced as I was that I was never going to get published. Um, so she's in there. And I just wrote as she was. Um, so I didn't have to try not to be saccharine because she was not a saccharine baby. <laughs> oh, what a tribute. Lovely. Um, um, this, this question might just be my poor reading, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, the, the other three novels, I, I think I'm right in saying very openly say which year they are, it's, uh, which year different scenes take place. And that's sort of at the top of chapters, I believe. Um, and Cray Lake, the first time I read it, which is 15 years ago, I didn't even realize it wasn't a contemporary novel uh, or set in contemporary times until, I don't know, I must have found out at some point. Um, and that might just be because I was reading it badly. But I, but it feels, to me at least, more, um, I guess, less anchored in a specific time than some of the others, perhaps because rural communities have habits and traditions and things that, that are more... It, I don't know, more more eternal than, than some urban places. But I don't know if that was deliberate or if it's me just misreading it. No, um, it neither, actually. Nothing okay, of what okay. I is ever deliberate. It's just that, like I say, I was writing this book for myself, and as I knew when it was set, I didn't bother to say when it was set. Um, mm. And uh, I was aware afterwards that that might be a particular problem for some people. But the thing was, uh, in the 1940s and 50s, I thought that people who who uh, were living, who would read the book now, would not believe how isolated it could be back then. But in mm -hmm. fact, in the North, it still is. And I'm talking, you know, 2023. So um, you're right that small communities do tend to be, if they, particularly if they're really great distances from so-called civilization they too tend to be behind the times less so now because most places have uh, television um or at least radios but back then no they were isolated but i i kind of i didn't want to tie it down i just wanted to write about this family and i wasn't mm. interested in the setting other than the the landscape um, so I didn't bother with the time. And then in the other novels, I thought, well, actually, I gave myself problems because the other novels are tied 
by a single character, uh, mm, Dr. Jackson, mm. who comes into all four novels yes. and will come into the fifth. Um, ah. Yeah. And therefore, they are tied in time to Crow Lake. And so kind of if you work back retrospectively, you can you can figure out. Can yes. <laughs> well, I just interrupt and ask a question based on, on what Mary's just oh, please, said? Please, yes. Of this is one of my questions. I love the fact, Mary, that Dr. Christofferson pops up in every novel. And <laughs> I'm wondering if Dr. Christofferson is ever going to get his own novel. Uh, that's an interesting thought. Um, actually, I got uh, a letter from a doctor in Northern Ontario whose father and grandfather had both been doctors in Northern Ontario. And he said, you have told our story. Oh. Um, so that was after the other side of the bridge in which he plays a fairly large role. Yes. Um, he could, he could only my source now. Um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have somebody who could, who could fill me in on the details. The, uh, the doctor who filled me in was a doctor up there at that time. And when mm-hmm. I, went to see him for details for the other side of the bridge. He was 86. Oh, wow. That was back in ooh, 2012, I guess, or or 2010 even. Um, I have a, a brother living up there, and I said, do you know a doctor? I badly need a doctor for, um, for facts about what his life was like up there. And he was fantastic, and, I, and the novel would not be anything like as strong without him. And 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 everybody up there is at that time is dead. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Um, Well, I mean, this is a good uh, opportunity to move on to the other side of the bridge. I think. Um, I mean, I could ask about Cray Lake all day, but uh, yeah, Rachel, I'm sure has questions. But maybe Rachel, you could start by just introducing us to the novel. Yeah. So um, the other side of the bridge is very much the story of, of two brothers, Arthur and Jake, um, who grow up together on a farm and Arthur is is the kind of strong and silent type and Jake is is his mother's pride and joy and their rivalry uh, is, is the kind of focus of the story. But also um, Arthur's marriage to Laura and how that also is, is problematic between the two of them, which you don't find out until later. I won't say too much about that, but um, that certainly took me by surprise. Um, and it's narrated through the eyes of Ian, who is the son of a, the aforementioned Dr. Christopherson. So um, we also get the story of Ian and his father. And Ian is sort of 17, 18 and deciding what he's going to do with his life um, that's woven into the, this story because he work, he spends a summer working on Arthur's farm and is an observer of um what happens when Arthur and Jake are, are reunited after a long period of being apart from each other. Um, I thought The Other Side of the Bridge was absolutely phenomenal as a novel. Couldn't put it down. Um, it was quite difficult to go to work, actually, because I was like, I just really want to stay at home. And, and <laughs> That's very nice of you. Um, and I, yeah, I took it to work with me in my bag and every time I sort of had five minutes between lessons, I was like, I'll just read, read a few more pages. Um, I thought it was absolutely compelling and I I loved all of the characters so much and it it was 
so absorbing in terms of emotionally forming those emotional connections to each and every character everybody's felt so vibrant so real and I thought it was so interesting having Ian as the narrator in a story that seems like it's about other people but it's very much about him as well so I'm my first question to you Mary is why did you decide to have Ian as the narrator rather than Arthur or Jake was that a sort of conscious decision or did it just kind of feel natural to do it that way it it evolved I it's the story started as most of well the other books apart from Crow Lake um, have all started simply with a character, and that character was Jake. Right. Uh, sorry, I beg your pardon, was Arthur. Okay. And I saw him when he was about 18. Uh, this guy came to me standing in the farm kitchen in his socks, um, trying to explain to his mother why it was pointless in carrying on at school. Mm-hmm. Uh, she insisted that he get an education, and he thought it was totally irrelevant. And I thought, this is not an articulate guy. Um, And yet, I know that he is the hero. He doesn't have any of the attributes of your normal hero. Mm. And I thought, well, I'm going to have to give him somebody to bounce off of. So I gave him a brother, because brothers bounce. I should say, I have two brothers and (laughs) two sons. And my husband is one of two brothers. And I know the dynamics pretty well. I find it a fascinating um, set of dynamics. Oh yeah, I have two grandsons too. So um, I watch these interactions and think, boy, they're, they're just endless, the, the permutations on this. And I made Jake everything that Arthur isn't, mm-hmm. and then gave them a, a knife to play a knife game, which is a game that my brothers used to play um, <laughs> in reality. Um, only with their shoes on, not in bare feet. Okay, good. Yeah. yeah. But then I thought, I'm going to need a second viewpoint character. Uh, Mm -hmm. Arthur is my hero, but I need somebody who will see him differently from how he sees himself, for sure. And so I came up with Ian, who is uh, a teenager and as idealistic and naive as teenagers are or were prone to be back in my day. Um, It's the Madonna or the whore, you know, and to him, Laura is the Madonna. And um, his infatuation with her is the reason he goes to work uh, on Arthur's farm. And having him watch from the outside the dynamic between the two brothers, I found a very useful way to develop it myself. Mm-hmm. But I should say here now that I never studied uh, English at a higher level and therefore never analyzed books and therefore have no knowledge of the technique of writing. And it has been a problem for me. I I have no technique. It all evolves and I just keep going over it and over it and a a story grows out of a character. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what the story was about until I gave Arthur and Jake a knife 
And by the end of that scene, I did know what the story was about, kind of um, in that I knew what the end point was. I just didn't know what happened in between the beginning and the end. And that all grew very slowly over the course of six or seven years wow. uh, until gradually I had I had the whole thing from two viewpoints. And and I think having those two viewpoints for me is what makes the story so compelling. And I love that your description of um, you know, I'm I'm an English teacher, as listeners know, and I'm always teaching children the technique for writing things. But I'm very much I write as well, and I'm very much an organic writer in the way that you describe. And yes. I, I think approaching literature from that very structured perspective is the antithesis, really, of good writing, in, in my view, because good writing should come from the heart and it should grow slowly as you get to know the people you want to write about. So. I think that's probably why one of the key reasons really why your books feel so emotionally compelling is because they are so steeped in what feels natural rather than trying to construct something. Do you know that's the first time anybody has ever said that to me and it is so heartening because I have <laughs> felt that I'm doing it wrong and that's why I'm so slow. Um, it probably is why I'm so slow but at least I'm not necessarily doing it wrong. That's just what my approach is. Well, um, you're not doing it wrong because you've written four incredible novels. So, <laughs> <laughs> yes, but that's uh, given that I am now coming up for 78, that's not a huge <laughs> body of work. Um, it does take me forever. But uh, anyway, that's what I to say. Well, I mean, that's that's really interesting thinking about that process, I think, of having those central characters and then branching out and thinking, what else do I need to add on here? Yeah. Um, and for me, reading, I was just thinking about this today. I've spent this morning teaching my sixth formers about Greek tragedy. Uh, we're doing Arthur Miller at the moment. And oh. I was thinking that the other side of the bridge feels very much to me like a Greek tragedy. Did that occur to you when, when you were writing it? If I told you that I have not any idea of a Greek tragedy, <laughs> I have never studied a Greek tragedy, although Arthur Miller, I am a huge fan of, but he's not exactly Greek. But um, I don't know. I know certainly I was not basing it on any knowledge of writing or where it comes from or right. doesn't it have a chorus Greek tragedy I don't have a chorus it, it does stereotypically but I mean I, I feel like this idea of the each of the characters has this sort of fatal flaw within them and and something that yeah. I I love in in your novels and I thought it was very strong in Crow Lake as well um, is this is this sort of idea of silence and of, of what people don't say to each other and and the kind of rot that sets in in between people's relationships and for me what I found so tragic about the other side of the bridge and I sort of really welled up actually was well actually I can't say because it'll be a spoiler but um when <laughs> when Jake has that moment that I won't mention when we we realize how much he, what his father thinks of him matters to him yes and that yes. was so so profound for me, and the fact that they'd 
they'd never had the opportunity to have that conversation. Did you, were you thinking about those silences as you were writing the story about these brothers, the things that they don't say? I wasn't, but that is what I grew up with. I grew up with silence. Ours was a family that never discussed anything that was actually fundamentally important ever. Um, And it was a big problem. And I think all of the male characters in all of my books are pretty silent. I don't, I don't really, I didn't grow up with any other kind of man. And, and in the farming community that uh, I grew up in, um, the farmers were not on the whole a gabby lot. Um, there, it was typical back then that the boys could not be spared to go on to any further education. They left school the minute they could because they were needed on the farm. So if anybody was going to get an education, it was the girls. And the headmistress of our little tiny village school um, uh, had gone off to teacher's college. Her husband was the janitor and did that as a part-time job in addition to being a farmer. So these guys didn't spend a lot of time talking. They didn't have a lot of time to spend, for a start. Mm. But I grew up in a very silent household. Um, and since adulthood, my brothers and sister and I have never stopped talking. But <laughs> at, at the time, uh, we really didn't. We really didn't at all. Can I just jump, jump in on there just because it, it's, it's related? It's just me wanting to mention a moment that is, I think, my, my favorite no- moment in any of the novels. Uh, and it's, again, in a really small one, when um, Jim Peake in a town called Solace, the... Uh, Tyler slash every does every task it seems um was talking about his son and saying why now so has he gone off to be a vet he could uh he's spending all this money to go and put his hand up cows and this, I think oh, I can't remember the exact quote I should have written it down but something like you say something like he couldn't even look him in the eye because he was so proud and didn't want to give it away and I just stopped and put the book down when I saw that and thought that's just such a beautiful small moment for this fairly incidental character the son you know he doesn't yes. to do but uh but such a beautiful moment about things that's one of the i guess an example of things that aren't spoken but but mm. not necessarily in a bad way that's still still this that, beautiful, that beautiful is right. if your parents were proud of you they never said so but you mm. you did kind of get an inkling of it sometimes but mm. i don't remember any, either of my parents ever saying anything like well done um ever there was hell to pay didn't do well but there was never there was never anything you know um, and i think jim's son knew like he he knew his dad was proud of him i'm pretty sure yeah he would know like ian in the other side of the bridge uh ian was very close to his father but they still didn't talk um and i i would just like to ask about laura as well and something that i find quite compelling in in all of the books is is the kind of isolation of of women in these communities they're in the home all day with the children doing all of the cooking um and caring around the community and um how did you kind of see Laura existing in this in this world of men because she always seemed I don't know I felt like I I didn't um I could sort of feel her frustration her loneliness a little bit in the way that she sometimes snapped at the children but um 
what do you think it was like for her living with a man who was silent the whole time? Well, I think she was in a a really difficult situation because she did not come from a farming family. Mm -hmm. uh, her father was a minister and uh, they moved there after Laura's mother died because he thought it would be good for her to get away and there was a a, a post going um, for a minister in this little this little town of Struan and um, she moves into it and then uh, the fates decree as they so often do that um, she will meet somebody and get married and she ends up stuck in a in a community that she doesn't truly understand and I think she is very isolated mm. and she could scarcely have chosen a more um, uncommunicative man. <laughs> um, at one stage some German POWs come uh, to work on the farm. Um, it all, a lot of the action takes place during the war which was another mm. problem for me because it meant I had to do research. Um, which was nightmarish. How did the war affect <laughs> communities in Northern Ontario and how am I going to find out? But anyway, um, that's another story. But uh, now I've lost my train of thought. I can't remember what I'm talking about. <laughs> We're talking about Laura. <laughs> about Laura, yes. And this and this silent man that that she married, I think she had a very hard time, but she makes the most of it, I guess you could say. It's just that she too is flawed, like mm. all of us are, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. And when, I mean, this is this is a question about what your plans are really for, for future novels. Um, are you interested in exploring that the the farming community from from the perspective of a female character? I considered doing it from Laura's perspective. Mm. And then I thought, uh, no, in this book, she is an object. She is not a subject. Right. She's the object of men's desire. And I don't want her to have a voice. Um, I don't know why it is that my principal characters so often end up being male. I guess it's because I had two older brothers and my sister was very much younger and I ended up working in the steel industry so I know more than more men than I do women. Um, that's probably not the reason, but whatever. Uh, they just, it's whoever comes to mind and the the two principal characters of the book that I'm working on currently are both male. Oh. So it just turned out that way. Although women do play a role in it. But so far, I mean I'm at the early stages. There may end up being a third character. I don't know. And is this is Dr. Christopherson one of those characters? Can you tell us or not? No, he, he is a, a bit player. He's not one of the principal characters, but he does come into it very, I think, very briefly. Well, I'm excited. <laughs> Don't hold your breath. <laughs> <laughs> it years off. It'll be, worth, it'll be worth the wait. <laughs>
So Simon, did you want to to move on to, to the Yes, novel? absolutely. So Road Ends was actually the only novel uh, of yours I hadn't read until recently, and I read it entirely on the flight between Vancouver and Toronto. So it was perfect length. So I finished it as we landed. Um, and I, I must say I was struck as it opens. For the first two characters are called Simon and Tom. My name's Simon Thomas. So I felt like this was my book. <laughs> Uh, and, and my dad was a vicar, so Reverend Thomas. They thankfully, my dad, uh, rather nicer vicar. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yes, not, yes. not a vicar. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yes, it opens um, just for the listeners. It opens with the suicide of of a young man called Rob. Um, Simon and Tom are there when that happens. Uh, the novel looks at that the effect on Tom, uh, the reason why Robert took his life. Um, and there are, there are these three narratives in it. One is Tom's, the other follows his father, Edward, uh, particularly his memories of his violent father. And he's very driven by this attempt not to be a bad father like he had and ends up being a bad father in a whole different way. Um, and Megan, this his sister, um, well, Edward's daughter, Tom's sister, uh, who is the one he manages to get out and she uh, moves to the UK, the first step outside Canada in, in your books. Uh, right. There are various, uh, yes, yeah. Uh, the various other siblings, including a new, possibly ill-advised baby, and Emily, the mother, um, is uh, very preoccupied with this new baby, and to you know, far too preoccupied. Obviously, obviously not well. Um, and uh, and yes, there's a lot of a uh, lot of absent mothers, one way or another, in the books. But um, I don't. I don't. I, I watched an interview with you actually recently where you said that was not intentional and wasn't trying to say anything. So, so I won't ask that question. But I will. If you did say well, something no, interesting. Oh, sorry. No, please go. Yeah. No, I was just going to say that I was asked a very good one of the best questions I've been asked, I think, by somebody uh, uh, in the audience of a of a reading who said, "Why are all the mothers in your books either useless or dead?" Mm -hmm. I said that's. Such a good question. I, <laughs> you're absolutely. I didn't realize that, but yes, they are, and I don't know the answer. I really don't know <laughs> the answer. Well, I guess um, at that point, yes, a town called Solace hadn't come out, so there's slightly less useless mother in there. <laughs> so that's something. Yes. 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 Well, something that I was really interested by. Uh, that you said, I think, in, in in a video I saw, is that this novel was initially inspired by a famous painting. Is that true? It was. Um, I was in Oslo and um, had a morning off and went to the art gallery. And there was a whole there's a whole room uh, dedicated to Munch. And well, more than a room. There's a whole room dedicated to the screen. I didn't realize that wow. there were. Of different versions but there are and the plaque on the wall beside one of them said that the two figures at the far end of the bridge appear to be unaware of their friend's anguish and I hadn't I hadn't even noticed those two characters mm. uh, formerly but looking at them yeah they're just engaged in conversation and I thought Considering the, the depth of the screamer's anguish, it is it is pretty devastating. I mean, he could have jumped from that bridge. And then I thought, what would be the effect on them if he had jumped? 
And that was the starting point for the story. And I started with a boy, uh, Tom, uh, a young man, um, mm -hmm. for whom it has a devastating effect. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I heard a quote that you said that I really liked about when you were first, um, when you were first working on the gem, gem of the idea of Crow Lake, you said, I'd found my voice and my voice had a Canadian accent, which I thought was wonderful. Yeah. Um, and of course, this is the first novel uh, where you go outside of Canada, you go to, to yeah. London, England. Um, and yeah, how was it taking that voice to the UK? Well, that was pretty easy because in typical fashion, I had Megan arrive in 1968, which is the year I arrived. <laughs> no research. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. <laughs> no, research. no research was necessary at all um, for the English arts because uh, if you came from the back of beyond, which I did, London in 1968 was a pretty jaw dropping place to be. And um, I just called on my memory. In fact, in all of my books, I just call on my memories, not of things that actually happened, but of how the things that were going on struck me. For instance, traveling on the tube, uh, the noise of it, it's just, mm -hmm. I, the noise of public transport in the UK just is mind blowing. Clapham Junction Station, I used to use a lot, busiest station in, in Europe. Slam door trains in those days. It was the noisiest place. It just jarred my nerves, and it does for Megan too. And she's, um, she's stunned by England, blown away by it. And the yeah, question I mean, is, how long would she would she last in such a place? <laughs> Particularly when all her belongings are stolen instantly. All her belongings are stolen. That did not happen to me. I'm glad yeah. to hear that. <laughs> I mean, I have to say, I mean, I did this sort of transition in a much sort of much nearer each other on the spectrum, I guess. But I grew up in a, in a small village in Worcestershire, and I moved to Oxford, which is not a very big city. But for, even for me, that transition from a rural community where everyone knew each other, um, yes. you know, it felt quite old fashioned in a way. It, uh, you didn't really meet people from outside because people didn't really come or go particularly to then go no. to the city, which did feel very cosmopolitan and overwhelming and, you know, too big for me now. I've moved back to a tiny village. <laughs> but, um, but uh, yeah, I think that, that really came across so well. And she, as, yeah, um, Megan's never been to a city before and suddenly she's moving to a, the capital city of another country. Yeah. Yes, she, she travels into London by train um, through the slums and realizes that she doesn't know if Canada has slums because she's never been to a Canadian city. Yeah. Um, and I remember seeing those, those buildings as you come into Waterloo Station and thinking, do people live there? There are curtains. <laughs> I mean, some of them are factories, but my goodness, they were a shock. Um, yeah. So that's how it was. Yeah. Um, so Tom and Megan, we, we get their sections um, in the third person. It's only Edward who's in the first person. I mean, I'm intrigued how you decide who is going to be first person, who's going to be third person when you've, when you've got these voices in your head. Interestingly, I put Edward into the first person because he was such an unsympathetic character that I, I didn't know how I would be able to 
tell his story so that anybody would want to read it unless you could see inside his mind. Mm -hmm. And I thought that would be easier to do in the first person because there's, there's nobody between the character and the reader if you do that. And I ended up doing exactly the same thing in a town called Solace um, for a different reason. There's a, an elderly lady who is one character in a town called Solace. And uh, her story, the intensity of it was so great that I couldn't, I, I couldn't seem to get it across. And I deleted her as a character for more than a year. I just made do with two characters in that book. And, Till I realized that I actually, I had to have her and I thought, well, try her in the first person. And it, it seemed to work. It's harder to manage, uh, technically, um, but it is more direct. I enjoy, yeah. I enjoy the experience of becoming that person, uh, very much. Wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. I think, yes, if he had been in third person, he, there's this, all this, yeah, I agree. He, he's, he's the least likable of the main three, I suppose, yeah. on, at least on the surface. So you do need to really get into into his you mind. You him and find out why. I mean, the, the, mm. the simple um, uh, saying that kind of has underpinned all of my writing is uh, to understand is to forgive. Mm. Uh, and that's what I'm struggling to do, to, to make characters who are flawed, realistically flawed, that you will nonetheless forgive. I mean, Kate in Crow Lake is not a particularly sympathetic character. She's very prickly. But if you know her story, the hope is that you will forgive her for that um, and that her boyfriend will forgive her for that. And I was going to ask actually quite a similar question to what uh, Rachel asked about Laura is is whether you ever considered Emily's point having Emily's point of view because she's obviously she's spoken about rather than spoken you know she doesn't get her own voice and um, yeah. everyone has a different opinion about how well she is or isn't and how much she needs interfering <laughs> with but, um, but she she I guess yeah we're never quite sure exactly what's going on in her mind um, was that always the intentional did it was there ever her voice on the page. No, she never got, there is one scene with Edward where she uh, has a lucid moment and mm -hmm. uh, asks him a question that devastates him. Um, but apart from that, you never, you never find out what is going on in her mind, which in any case is quite a blur. Um, yes. Um, Again, if I if I had written any of this with intent, um, if I was making decisions, then I would know the answer to that question. But that isn't <laughs> my right. She just didn't appear on the page. Yeah, yeah. You know, apart from in her bedroom with everlastingly a new baby. She has nine mm -hmm. in them, um, and she's useless at dealing with them once they uh, cease to be infants. And the rest of the family is left to pick up the pieces. Well, Megan was left to pick up well, the pieces. Well, yes. Oh, one of the infuriating things about the reading the novel is just how you, how these men are also useless at <laughs> taking care of anyone else. <laughs> they 
are utterly and completely useless. Yes. It doesn't even cross their mind, yeah. <laughs> it never occurs to them that they might be able to do something about it. And that there's nothing that Megan can do that they couldn't easily do as well. Well, exactly. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully that's okay. something that had this been set in 2020 would not wouldn't be taken for granted that only a woman could uh, could look after the family, but who knows. Um, depends, depends who you meet. <laughs> oh, yes, it's sadly true, yes. <laughs> um, my favourite thing in, in this novel is the dawning realisation of who a certain couple of characters are, who you don't tell us their names at first. There's a, we, we have a Tom gradually work out that there's a brother and sister who work in this cafe, uh, and it turns out, I'm sorry, I mean, I hope this isn't spoiling things for people who have not read it yet, but it turns out that it is Luke and Beau from Crow Lake. And I felt like I was meeting long lost friends. It was wonderful. I, I told my brother all about, I was on holiday with my brother while I was reading it. And I told him all about it and he's not read any of the books. He didn't know what I was talking about, but I was so excited to meet them again. <laughs> and it was, it was, it was because the one thing I wanted at the end of Crow Lake is like, I need more of this family. And I got that little bit more. We all got, we all got that little bit more of seeing them again and Oh, just seeing Bo growing up, loved it. Um, and uh, yeah, I was, I, was, I was wondering, we know that Dr. Christopherson's there throughout all, all, all the books, and there are, um, I don't know if there are others, I can't remember if there are others who flit in and out, but um, how, how did you decide to bring those two back? Are you ever tempted to bring more characters back? Well, yes, I would, <clears throat> I'd love to bring Bo back yet again. And do, I mean, what happened was I needed um a girl in um in tom's life and i thought the only place he's ever going to meet anybody is going to be in a cafe and mm -hmm. then uh i thought and she is going to be an almighty nuisance probably and that reminded me <laughs> that end of crow lake I said that Bo was working as a cook yes. in a cafe yeah. in Strum, which is the nearest town, fictional, to Crow Lake. And it's the cafe in Struan that uh, Tom frequents. And I looked at the dates and added up on my fingers and thought, <laughs> she's the right age. Oh, and I perfect. thought, oh, yeah. here comes Bo again. And I'm so glad that that gave you a lift because it gave me a lift. I thought, well, hey, <laughs> let's see how she turns out. I might say that my sister has not turned out at least <laughs> in least like um, Bo does. My sister is a uh, psychologist and uh, <laughs> very <laughs> oh, wow. a, a matter of fact person. <laughs> but uh, it was just such a treat being able to bring and to see that she is still giving Luke exactly mm -hmm. as much trouble as she always did, um, and he's doomed. <laughs> and I think it was wonderful that he could, that yeah, that Tom could tell that they were brother and sister just by the way they were talking to each other. It sort of dawns on him that brother and sister. It's wonderful. But it could only be siblings who would talk to each yeah. other. He has siblings, so he knows about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I had one last question before we move back to Rachel, which is, I guess, about this book, but about all of your books, really. Um, is is there any notable difference in the way, both critically and from readers, your books are received in Canada and in the UK, the things you hear back from people? Um, Crow Lake has been the most successful 
in Canada. Um, the other side of the bridge was the most successful here. It was mm. nominated for the Booker and um, picked by Richard and Judy, so it covered the basis. Um, <laughs> and then I would say that um, a town called Solace is kind of equally successful um, in in both the UK and in Canada and in the US. So I don't know quite what it, I, I have not figured out what it is that makes a book, one book more successful than another, but it's always true. I, I mean, with all the books I read, there are favorites of a particular writer. So it's yeah. fast to read. And when you hear from readers, are they saying similar sorts of things wherever they're coming from? Or are they, are they do you get Canadians saying, thank you so much for writing about, you know, the place I come from or anything? Yeah, I do. Absolutely. I do. But also more, more poignant things like from the other side of the bridge, I had two letters from mothers whose sons had committed suicide. Oh, wow. Uh, no, no, sorry, road ends. Road ends, yeah, yeah. Uh, two letters saying that they had not read a book before where it's those who are left behind who are um, the subject of, of the writer's interest rather than the one who commits suicide. So that sort of thing, which doesn't tend to know any national boundaries. Um, the other side of the bridge was very, very successful in Germany. Um, oh. They loved the POWs. <laughs> Interesting, so, yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was very strange. And in fact, uh, it is still a text over there. Um, kids who are studying English in Germany study the other side of the bridge in English with um, notes to explain things that are, are unclear, such as Mounties is explained as police, <laughs> policemen on horses. Which yeah. <laughs> Good, and I thought it was a one, yeah, wonderful moment when they're sort of miming milking cows at each other and you can tell just by their mime that they're, <laughs> they're from, from the land. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, I'll hand over to Rachel now for the fourth novel. Yeah, so um, A Town Called Solace is Mary's most recent novel and was actually longlisted for the Booker Prize. And it's set, again, in um, a small town in northern Ontario and it's got three narrators um, who are interconnected with each other. So we start the novel with Clara, who is very young. She's seven, eight years old. And the, we enter the narrative at the moment when her her older sister has just gone, has just run away from home, gone missing, and how she's dealing with that. And um, at the same time, her her neighbour, who she loves, Mrs Orchard, elderly neighbour who lives next door, uh, is in hospital. And a man suddenly moves into her house. And then we have the story then of Liam, who is the man who's just moved into her house into Mrs Orchard's house is in his 30s just recovering from a marriage breakup and Mrs Orchard herself um so it's it's really interesting because you've got this intertwined stories of these three people from three different generations and we never actually kind of see all three of them together but we yeah. have different parts of their lives told from different perspectives having heard about your writing process now which of these characters came to you first it was Clara 
standing at the window, watching a strange man carry big boxes into the house next door. And I didn't know anything but that. I only had that image in my mind. And I thought, who is this child? And uh, why is she standing there? And who's the man and what's in the boxes and what's it all about? I knew none of that. And then um, for about a fortnight, I was just stuck with that, staring at that description, which is how the book opens, and thinking, uh, now what? And then there was an item on the news about uh, a child who had gone missing, and the parents and the police um, were uh, making an appeal for anyone who had information to come forward. And I... There were no siblings present, which is quite right. You wouldn't, you wouldn't want to expose children to the media at a time like that. Um, but I thought, I wonder what it's, what this does to the kids at home, the siblings of a child who goes missing. And then I thought, maybe that is the situation with this little girl. Maybe, maybe she has, let's say, a beloved older sister who's had a row with her mother and stormed off and has not returned. And they do not know where she is. And there's been a police search and there is absolutely not a trace. And I thought, okay, so that's her story. Yeah. Uh, and then she looks at this, this guy who's carrying boxes into the house next door and he produces a key and she thinks how did he get the key because she has a key she has to go in and feed mrs orchard's cat while mrs orchard's in hospital but there isn't another key and i thought well that's a good question how does he get the key i guess i better tell his story uh -huh. and of course his story ends up being all bound up with mrs orchard's story and that becomes clear a long way into the book yeah the, the the trickiest bit and i don't get there for about 100 pages is how to handle the relationship between this little girl and liam when they meet because they're bound to meet she keeps going into his house when he's not into the house that he's moved into when he's not there to feed the cat and play with the cat so it's going to happen and what is his reaction going to be? And uh, he's a man with a very, very difficult past and absolutely zero experience of children. What is he going to say to her? And that that caused me problems. I sat staring at my laptop for a long time over that one. Well, I, I think um, it's really interesting to hear you say that because I thought that the way you wrote Liam's interactions with Clara were were brilliant and were so well observed that awkwardness that he has around her he's obviously got no experience with young people and yeah. then watching you know he's obviously come to solace at a time when his life is completely falling apart and he feels utterly useless as a person yes. and that bond that he forms with with Clara gives 
him that sense of purpose again and also someone to be responsible for um which i just thought was was really beautiful and i don't think i've i've read a dynamic like that in a in a novel before it's a really interesting relationship and one that you handle with such sensitivity um and then you've also got that relationship between mrs orchard and clara but also um liam as we find yes. out yes. and I, w- I was really interested in in the character of mrs orchard we go back i think probably the furthest in time in your books with with her past yes um yeah and she was born in 1900 yes and the so, book is in 72 yeah and i thought her story was was really powerful and particularly for a woman of her time when you know she, in the 1930s not being able to have a child yeah when that's really all that you're supposed to do yes. it's so difficult so how did you you kind of mine further into into her as a person um and and what sort of sources did you go to to kind of explore her i thought she would be um very affected by her times because of course in the late 30s along comes the second world war Mm. and um at the best of times a woman would never talk about subjects such as infertility or indeed anything to do with her own body Mm. and she might well not even go to her doctor in normal circumstances with the problem of not being able to conceive a child but particularly during the war, when there is such catastrophe going on all around her, she is not going to um, bother a doctor with such a, an apparently trivial matter, or of course, it is anything but trivial. She has had five miscarriages and is in a devastating psychological state. Mm. And her husband is um working very hard during the war he is not sent overseas he works for uh, a very famous agricultural college uh in southern ontario because so did my paternal grandfather uh at the same time (laughs) so i knew how that was going to um pan out what his what his job was going to end up being and he would she would not bother him with her little troubles and then this family moves in next door with three children Mm. including this enchanting little boy and uh yes it goes on from there and i found her story very painful Mm. to write uh i thought it, it would be an agony and also what happens in the end uh, to her and, and to this, the family with the children is so traumatic. Mm. And that was one of the things that, that made me write her in the first person. I thought, how are you going to tell this? How are you going to make it credible that such a woman would do such a thing? Um, and it was, it was very challenging. I think it was the most challenging thing I've had to, to write. 
Yeah, and it's really interesting, actually, because I was going to ask you about that, because the other stories aren't in the first person, and I had wondered why why you decided to, to have Mrs. Orchard. Yeah. character is sort of speaking to her husband, um, yeah. who, who yes. is obviously dead. And I think now now you've talked about that, you're, you're quite right. You know, you do need to hear her voice. You need to understand from her perspective. Yes. Um, and I thought it was so tragic that that what she decides to do is with with Liam um it really does alter the entire further course of her life but at the same time there's no malice in what she does and no no um, I just thought it was yeah I found it very heartbreaking and I, I could have read a whole book just about Mrs Orchard to be honest um I thought I mean I love the whole thing but it's I thought she was she was marvelous and um a, a story also that you don't hear of often that's a woman that would would normally be the villain and yes yes indeed and Uh, you make us so sympathetic uh, again to understand is to forgive i guess Uh, or at least that's the aim but it's it's great that that worked for you because i wasn't sure and uh, initially the publishers were not happy with having this imbalance of having her in the first person oh really Yes, oh. uh, but I knew it could work because it had worked with Edward uh, back in Road Ends. But I just, I just explained that I could not. I had tried to write her in the third person, and I could not get deep enough inside to make uh, to to portray the intensity of her story. I needed mm. her to tell it. Well, I'm, I'm glad you stuck to your guns because it's... oh, good. Yeah, it's it's what you need. It's the linchpin, I think, of the novel. And I think it's really interesting, Mary, that you're you sort of trained as a psychologist because you're you're so good at getting inside people's minds and being able to look at things from different people's perspectives. And something that I think you do so incredibly well, um, as a teacher used to working with young people, is you capture the voice of children so well. Um, how did you feel writing Clara, such a young child, alongside those older characters. Well, of course, there was there was a problem with Clara and uh, Liam. Um, I didn't have any problem with their voices when the characters come to me. So do their voices. I mean, they develop over mm-hmm. time. But I, I don't find it, people say, how do you write as a man? Well, I don't write as a man. I write as an individual. Uh, I wrote Liam as Liam, not a man. Yeah. So he, his character was not hard to write from that perspective at all. Um, but it was, it was a practical difficulty with him because um, I know I gave that, uh, the book to my, brothers to read and my uh, I had asked uh, the brother who lives up north if he knew a policeman because I needed information about a policeman who I needed to know what it was like to be a policeman up there on your own way back and sure enough of course he did uh, an old guy and my brother said well I'm telling you something he is not going to like that little girl being in the house alone with a strange guy and you're going to have to figure out a way to make that pass mm. his, his judgment. 
So it was that sort of difficulty. How do you, in this day and age, when you look at a strange man and uh, talking to a small child and these thoughts, which actually we didn't have back then, mm. but the reader will now, mm. and therefore you have to, and a policeman back then would not have liked that either because they know more about it than the man in the street. Um, so I had to find a way of, of getting around that. That was a technical issue. And I had to, uh, I got a lot of information from the cop about mm. what would happen and, you know, that sort of thing. So I didn't have a trouble writing about <clears throat> different generations and finding their voices that that does seem to come. Um, it's, it's, it's the writing of it, the technical bits that I really do struggle with. Yeah. Left brain, right brain. I only have the one function. <laughs> <laughs> well, you make it seem effortless when you read it, I have to say. Um, <laughs> um, I find it interesting, actually, that, that you talk about how you've, you've not, um, had much background in literature and and that you've not had any technical training and when we think about um this novel a town called solace you were long-listed for the booker prize so how did that feel for you when that happened well uh completely mind-blowing i i hadn't expected it at all in fact the other side of the bridge was also long-listed for the booker and mm. that I actually thought they must have made a mistake <laughs> I I didn't see the novel in that way at all and I definitely didn't see solace in that way at all but it was it was wonderful in a way because it it meant if solace was long-listed that they hadn't made a mistake about the other side of the bridge. Um, that they that it didn't get in there just by accident. But I don't see them. Uh, you tend to think of the Booker as being a very literary prize, mm. and I don't consider them to be very literary books. They are stories of characters. Um, but I was absolutely thrilled to pieces. I I am. I mean, I would ask nothing more. It, it's it was a great thrill. Well, I, yes, I think the mistake is that they didn't win. That's my We talk a lot on the podcast about how much we often don't like prize-winning books. And I, yeah. I think actually, for me, it's it's really encouraging to see that books that are about human stories and have those characters at their centre are being rewarded now, are being seen for the to have the quality that, that they do have. And the quality of your writing is enormously good. I mean, I, I'm still flabbergasted that, you know, you, you consider yourself not to be literary because you've got that wonderful writing style that I don't notice the writing. And that's true genius as a writer, I think. Um, you remind me very much of Elizabeth Strout as a writer. Um, oh, yeah. I don't know read much of her stuff. Oh, yeah, she, and I, I think you're, you've got a very similar writing style um and yeah well that is that i mean the only 
The only conscious decision I ever made about the writing was when I started to write Crow Lake and thinking, how do I tell the story? And I thought it was a very unsophisticated place and time. So no big words. Keep it simple. Just tell the story. And mm -hmm. I found that was easiest to write. And so I have just, I just continue to try to keep it as basic and simple as I can and just tell the story. Um, yeah. so I suppose in that sense, the writing doesn't get in the way. Um, the hope is, but, uh, you both said such amazing things. <laughs> I am deeply indebted to you and, um, wonderful. Thank you so much. Uh, of course. Yeah. Um, now, I should say, the conceit of the podcast is that we pick a favourite of things. Uh, do you have a favourite from your, your own four novels? Or are they like children, you just love them equally? <laughs> um, well, like children, I love them equally. Um, but if I could only have written one, it would be Crow Lake. Oh. Because I guess it... It has the closest parallels. Nothing in there that happens in there uh, actually happened to me or to anyone I know. And the only real character is Bo. But the the influences on uh, Kate and her siblings, um, both of their surroundings and of the time and of the people, the place, and the way little communities work um, for good and for ill, um, they are all the same influences that there were on me. Mm. Uh, and it was um, hugely popular with the community that I grew up in, which was the single most important thing to mm. me. I mm. thought they're going to know that I based the idea of communities on this one. What will they think? And they, they loved it. They were wonderful. Um, oh, so, great. Yeah, that, are appreciated in their own hometown. <laughs> that, that was, I had not expected that book to be published. I truly had not. And, and I was worried when it was that the people at home in Canada generally, because everybody else would, people from other countries would have to assume that I knew what I was talking about, whereas Canadians would know <laughs> whether or not I knew what I was talking about and particularly small communities. So the fact mm -hmm. that they endorsed it was really, really important to me. And if you don't mind, uh, Rachel and me also picking our favourites. We've never done this in front of the author before, so oh, it makes I it feel, it feel quite surreal. <laughs> but uh, Rachel, which, you, which would you choose? I think for me, I mean, I love them all, Mary, I will say this, but um, I think for me, the one that I found the most emotionally moving um, and that I really couldn't put down was the other side of the bridge. Yes. So that's what I will go with. Yes. I think Arthur is my favourite character of all the characters. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's my favourite too. Yeah. And Simon? Yes. I was really tussling in my head between the other side of the bridge and Crow Lake. Like Rachel, I love them all, but those those are tussling for top spot. And I think Crow Lake just edges it. But um but oh, it's, it was, it's a tough decision. Um, my favourite character might be Moses the cat. So, you know, <laughs> so if there's a cat in the book, it's probably my favourite character. 
Moses is in there for my sister. She said she would not proofread another of my books if it didn't have a cat in it. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. I mean, (laughs) when I handed uh, Rachel uh, that one to two questions for, I thought, oh, it's going to someone who won't appreciate the cat. Rachel's not a cat person, but, you know, but I appreciated the cat. (laughs) I'm not a cat person either. I'm allergic to them. Uh Like like (laughs) Clara's mom. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us. I, it's a real dream come true to have you on the podcast and, um, and to answer. We've gone well over the time I said it would be. So thank you for being with us all this time and for having such wonderful answers and um, to our questions. Um, we really well, appreciate having you. Thank you. I've enjoyed it enormously. And uh, uh, feel free to uh, trim it to time. Um, <laughs> oh no leave every second well apart from Rachel's coughing might cut some of that out <laughs> um, uh, for, for the listeners next in the next episode we will be comparing Sheep's Clothing by Celia Dale and Harriet Said by Beryl Bainbridge um, but until then thank you so much for listening and thanks again to our wonderful guest Mary Lawson thank you thank you, thank you very much goodbye